Well, if you turn uh, just before Matthew 16, uh, actually to the end, very end of Matthew 14, uh, this evening we're going to look at Matthew 14, verse 34, uh, down to Matthew 15 and verse 20. So in the church Bibles, that's page 981. And in the large print Bibles, page 1525, Matthew 14 from verse 34. One of the big subjects in this passage that we're going to read is the, uh, the, the subject or the thought about traditions. Now, all of us have traditions of certain kinds. Uh, most of you, no doubt, have Family traditions, uh, sometimes they can be the most weird uh, traditions that we can perhaps have. Uh, certainly at Christmas time, most people have family traditions. Uh, we may even have personal traditions, things you do on certain days of the year or uh, days of the week or whatever. Uh, you may even have workplace traditions. We had one in one place I worked that if you were going to make the tea, you had to be able to throw the tea bag into the cup from a certain distance. Every time you made a cup of tea, that's what you did. It was the tradition uh, of tea making in our workplace. Uh, some are very odd, aren't they? But one place that has some very, very odd traditions actually is our Houses of Parliament. Now, some of the traditions are very practical. So, for example, just like at school, in the Houses of Parliament, every MP by tradition, has their own coat peg with their name on it. Others are a bit odd, such as in the House of Lords, you are not allowed to say the commons. It's tradition. And so, if you're mentioning something to do with the commons, you have to say the other place. But some of the traditions in the Houses of Parliament are just plain funny. So one which I recently have learnt about was that on the day of the Queen's speech, an MP has to be kidnapped and locked in, the, in Buckingham Palace while the Queen's speech goes on. It happens every single year during the Queen's speech. The Queen's speech is when she uh, reads out the government business for the year. Now, this goes back to a time when there was a difficult relationship between the Queen and Parliament, and the parliamentarian was locked away to guarantee the safety of the monarch as they traveled back from parliament in case they were uh, attacked. And they still do that today, even though it's very unlikely that a member of parliament is going to try and assassinate the monarch. It's a tradition. Some of these traditions can be a bit antiquated or quaint, but here's the thing, they're not the law of the land. They are not as important as the law of the land, either to MPs or to the nation. We are rightly, I am sure, far more concerned about cracking down on knife crime than which MP is going to be kidnapped next time the Queen does her speech. But traditions can go very wrong and turn very bad. And that is what happened with the traditions of the religious leaders in Jesus' day, the Pharisees. And in Matthew chapter 15, we see the Pharisees challenging Jesus for not following what is said here is called the tradition of the elders. The tradition of the elders. Now these traditions were a great corpus of oral teaching that was passed down from generation to generation. They began as explanations of the Old Testament law 
detailing rules of conduct. Not such a bad thing, necessarily. The idea was that if you fenced the law, put rules around the laws of the Bible, then you couldn't possibly break the law because the fence would keep you far away from being able to break it. But these traditions grew and grew, and they became more and more of a burden. And the traditions, which were not commanded in the Scripture, began to take precedence over the Scripture. It is the equivalent of the kidnapping of the MP becoming way more important than the Queen's speech itself. To the Pharisees, the traditions was more important than the Scripture. So what you do became way, way more important than what you are. Religion, how you worship God, was all about the external. And so when the Pharisees challenged Jesus on not following their external traditions, which was what they thought religion was all about, Jesus responds by turning religion inside out. And that's what we see in this passage in the end of Matthew 14 and the first 20 verses of Matthew 15. So let's read those verses and see how Jesus turns religion inside out. When they had crossed over, they landed in Gesenaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all who were ill to him and begged him to let those who were ill just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God... They are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull, Jesus asked them? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. This is God's word. 
And this passage is broken down really into two sections with two related lessons about the Word of God and the human heart. And the first lesson that we uh, see from this passage is this. The Word of God is the foundation of authentic worship. Now, it begins this passage in chapter 14, uh, just after Jesus has walked on water. We saw that wondrous story. Uh, the disciples had been in a storm uh, with Jesus, they had, but, they, uh, to, but in order to get to the other side, they needed his help. Uh, Jesus came, and they got to the other side. And when they got there, uh, Jesus is recognized. Uh, word goes out in verse, uh, it seems, in verse 34 and 35, and people bring the sick to him, and they are healed. And they're healed, notice, just by touching the edge of his cloak. And what we're, we're seeing here is just the amazing power that comes from Jesus. And it's in here in just a couple of verses, but really all through Matthew's gospel, we've been seeing these amazing works of Jesus. Amazing power, but just for Jesus, so normal. Why does Matthew put these verses here? Why do we need to know this? Well, I think that it's to put some context around the confrontation we're about to see with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are about to challenge Jesus on hand washing after he has been touched by a group of people that they would class as unclean or defiled. Jesus shows compassion for the sick, but the Pharisees, well, they wouldn't be seen anywhere near them because they might be unclean. And so after Jesus heals these people and shows his love to them and shows his great power, at this point in verse 15, we come to chapter 15, which begins with then, so around this time, some Pharisees came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Now, they were from Jerusalem. So this means that they were uh, an official delegation sent to the area uh, to probably suss out who Jesus was because crowds were following him. Being from Jerusalem meant that they were important people, respected people. And they wanted to see who is this man that is drawing so many crowds. What kind of a man is this? They see Jesus as a threat to their hegemony over the religious life of the people. And so an official delegation comes. The other point to note about these Pharisees from Jerusalem is that the people of the time would have seen them as authoritative and respected people. And as we come to verse 2, we see that they've come to see Jesus, the one who heals people by just touching his cloak, the one whose words and works have been awesome. And at this time, after we've read of the amazing power of Jesus, after we've seen him walk on water and do all these great deeds, the Pharisees know the crowds are following him. They know the kind of things Jesus is doing. What, I mean, what would you ask him if you were to see him? Well, what do they ask him? What are they interested in after all the great things Jesus has done? They say to him, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. 
After all that Christ has done, they're asking about hand-washing. And it gets to the heart of their religion. Now, this isn't washing hands because of hygiene. This was talking about a ritual, religious hand-washing. Now, in the Old Testament of the Bible, there was required ritual hand-washing for priests at the temple, but not for ordinary folk like Jesus' disciples. And there was a whole procedure for this. Uh, A couple of years ago, when we were at Contagious, there was a Contagious outbreak of sickness, ironically. Uh, And we had to get Zoe to show us how to wash our hands properly. And I have to say, I do wash my hands, but I'd never really washed them like Zoe showed us to wash them. So she showed us a special way of doing all uh, parts of the hands so that our hands were clean. And every time that we would need to wash our hands, we were trying to follow Zoe's way of doing it. And to teach us it, we even put it into our Contagious Camp song as part of the, the, the dance we did. So we learned the procedure of how to properly wash your hands. I thought that was quite a procedure. But the tradition of the elders had a a whole other procedure, at a whole other level, about how to ritually wash your hands. It was the tradition to do this. It wasn't hygiene, it was their tradition. And the disciples were not following it. And here's the heart of the issue. Jesus was not conforming to their external traditions. And it was putting the noses of the Pharisees all out of joint. Because to their minds... Jesus was not worshipping God right. That was the point. To them, he was not worshipping God right because they were not ritually washing their hands according to their tradition. So how does Jesus respond? Well, in verse 3, he responds by teaching how it is them who have worship all wrong. And his response is damning. He asked them a question. Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? He accuses them of putting tradition as more important than God's word. So he's saying, you break God's commands, God's word, what he has given, for the sake of your traditions. Traditions trump scripture. That was what he was saying. Why do you allow tradition to trump scripture? And then in verses 4 to 6, he gives an example. For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. Now, honoring father and mother was a command of God. It was commandment number five in the list of the Ten Commandments. It's repeated throughout the Scriptures. It was a clear command of God. So important that if you curse your father or mother, you would be put to death. That wasn't God being harsh. It was God saying, look how important I take honoring parents. And that included caring for the needs of parents when they get older. And in fact, that's even repeated in the New Testament for us. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 
But, and here's the thing with the traditions, there is a tradition of the elders that said that money could be devoted to God. What that meant was, if I could devote some money to God, which meant that when I die, that money could go to the work of the temple. But here's the thing. I didn't have to set it aside and not use it. That They could continue spending the money, and whatever was left could be given to the temple. But when it was classed as devoted to God, it meant that nobody else could touch it, even parents. So if your mother or father came and said, I need help, you could quickly devote the money to God and say to your parents, I'm, I'm sorry, mum, or I'm sorry, dad, that money's devoted to God. And then you could spend it on yourself. Money devoted to God could be given to parents if the person who devoted it wanted to give it. But here's the thing, it didn't have to be. And so they could say, I don't have to obey this command to honor my parents because the tradition has said that this money is devoted to God. And so Jesus said at the end of verse 6, you nullify the word of God to honor your parents for the sake of your tradition. The point Jesus is making is this. Their tradition is the foundation of their worship rather than the word of God. In fact, as we'll see, it's not even worship of God at all. It is just self-serving. Now, tradition is not necessarily a bad thing as such. We have traditions in our own church. We have Advent candles during Advent. We say membership commitments together when welcoming new members. We always have food at baptisms. Even where we sit on Sunday can be a tradition. And none of these are necessarily bad. In fact, most of these traditions, not necessarily where we sit, mind, uh, are in our church to help us focus on truth from God's word. So, for example, why do we have Advent candles? It's not just so that we can have uh, you know, cute Bible readings and stuff like that. It's to remind us of the meaning of Advent. Why is it that we uh, say the membership commitments together? It's to remind us of the important commitments we make that are according to God's word as members together. Why is it we have food at baptisms? Well, there's a reason for that, because we want to have that community together and show that community to those that are coming to the baptism so that they can see us loving one another. But they could go very wrong, couldn't they? I mean, how about where you sit on a Sunday? That could go very wrong, couldn't it? What if someone's in your seat and a visitor comes and they say, well, you, you, they're in my seat. And you go to the visitor and say, look, you're in my seat. Your tradition of where you sit has trumped the command to love the stranger and welcome people into our church. Traditions can go very wrong, can't they? But the bigger problem for the Pharisees really was, was their heart. Their, their tradition trumped God's word. And the underlying reason for that was because their religion was all about the external. That was the big problem for them. It wasn't the actual tradition as such. It was that everything was about what they did. It was all about what they looked like. And that's why in verse 7, Jesus calls them hypocrites. A hypocrite is someone who puts on an act, who says one thing and does another. 
And in fact, a really good definition of a hypocrite is found in the, the verse Jesus quotes from Isaiah. When he says in verse 7, by the way, that Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, he means this, the words of Isaiah that were spoken to rebellious Israel in Isaiah's day fit you perfectly. That's what he's saying. And he says in uh, verses 8 and 9 how their lips honor God, that is, they say the right things, they come across as super holy and really close to God, but the reality, their heart, their innermost self, who they really are, is far, far away from God. And because their hearts are far away from God, it is shown in the way that they treat his direct commands. Their devotion to their traditions are really about what they look like, and certainly in terms of devotion to God, about how they can keep money for themselves. That was their heart, rather than the commands of God. It was all an act designed to impress other people and to get power for themselves. And behind this tradition of devoted to God, it was all about greed. They ignored God's command to honor their father and mother so they could be greedy but look godly because they said, well, it's devoted to God. And Jesus agrees with Isaiah when Isaiah says that this kind of worship in verse 9 is vain. Their teachings are just merely human rules. To be vain means it's empty. It's meaningless. It's, it has no value to God at all. It's just human rules. Human and nothing to do with God. And as we apply this, we need to think about our own hearts. Because the foundation of authentic worship is not tradition. It's the word of God. The foundation of authentic worship is not trying to look good in front of other people. It is the word of God. The foundation of authentic worship is not what can I get out of this. It is the word of God. So how do we apply it? Well, first of all, the focus of our obedience needs to be the word of God. That's the first thing we see here. The focus of our obedience needs to be the word of God. And that means not focusing our obedience on the culture around us, what looks good to them. In Jesus' time and place, the traditions of the elders was what marked them out as a, a righteous person. If you kept those traditions, the culture around you would look at you as a good and godly person. But for us, perhaps more looking good in our day means that we will agree with the agenda of the world around us. That we start to capitulate on what the Bible commands about abortion or marriage or, uh, or a whole host of other things. And I say those things in particular because that's what we're being attacked on right now. That is what's presented as moral issues by the media. And we will look so much better to the world if we say that abortion is, is fine or same-sex marriage is okay. We'll look like a really lovely person, perhaps. But we're disobeying the word of God and not worshipping him at all. This also means not using the word of God 
to fit our own agenda, like the devotion to God for the money that was going on here. So for example, we can use the command to love one another as an excuse to avoid confronting each other perhaps over sin or saying something is wrong. Or we can use verses on Christian liberty to offend other believers unnecessarily. That's not obeying the word of God. That's doing your own thing. So first of all, our focus of our obedience needs to be on the word of God. But secondly, the focus of our spirituality needs to be not only external. Now, don't get this wrong. As Christians, we do need to live uh, in a a way that is representing Christ to our world. We need to be spiritually disciplined. Those spiritual disciplines are important, but they are not what saves us. And the motivation behind them is not to look good in front of everyone else. And we need to be very careful that we don't judge our own and other Christians standing only on external things like what they wear or what time they get up in the morning or how long they pray for or how much they give or how much they're doing and and so on and so forth. There's a danger of living like the Pharisees of, of playing to the crowd of Christians in our congregation There's a great danger for focusing on the externals that it becomes all about me. Look at how spiritual I am, rather than authentic worship from the heart. And that's where Jesus changes the focus to in verse 10. He changes his audience from the Pharisees to the crowd, but he changes the focus to something else. See, first of all, we read that the word of God is the foundation of authentic worship, not external traditions. But as Jesus addresses the crowd, he turns this whole religious worldview on his head, on its head, when he says that the human heart is the foundation of real impurity. So the word of God is the foundation of authentic worship, but the human heart is the foundation of real impurity. In verse 10, Jesus tells the crowd to listen and understand. In other words, this is a really important truth. You've got to get this. And the reason he says this is really important, you've got to get it, is because it totally changes their whole worldview. It really does turn religion inside out. The truth that he's about to reveal just blows the minds of the Jewish people of the time. He says in verse 11... What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. In the book of Leviticus, you will read laws outlining foods that were clean and unclean, and a whole host of other things that made someone unclean. Unclean meant that you were not allowed into the temple or the tabernacle It effectively alienated you from full participation in the worship of God. What was the purpose of these laws? Well, in one sense, the laws in Leviticus were to teach people to obey God. Another purpose was to mark out Israel as a special people, unique from the nations around them. But also, and here's the crucial point, 
These laws were pictures or illustrations that showed people a real uh, a reality. These pictures showed a reality, and the reality was this. We, all of us, are unclean and defiled. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with pork or bodily discharges and so on. The point was that God used these everyday things, things that he chose, to point people to their uncleanness. Every single Israelite at some point would be unclean. And so we're reminded that they are alienated from God and need cleansing. It was a constant reminder of their need to be cleansed, to be in a relationship with God. And if these, are, if these laws are pictures, then they do not make us unclean in the deepest place, which is our hearts. We are already unclean in our hearts, whether we've eaten pork or not in the Old Testament. And the, the problem was that some people believed, if I keep all these laws, I'll be able to be clean and have a relationship with God. And so they had all the traditions on top of the laws to make sure that you could be clean all the time. But the problem that they missed was, and what they were supposed to be reminded of all the time throughout their Levitical law was that our uncleanness goes way deeper. And it's shown not just what goes in our mouth, but what comes out of it. In verse 11, Jesus is saying that we can avoid all the wrong food and still be defiled by what comes out of our mouth. And that is, as we'll see, our words, the things we say. But before we get there, we come to verse 12, because this was the opposite to what the Pharisees were teaching. They were teaching all about the external. And the disciples were concerned that, well, you know, these men have come from Jerusalem, they're eminent men, Jesus, and you've just gone and offended them. And no doubt they were very offended, but Jesus doesn't seem to care about the offense he's caused them. The reason he doesn't seem to care was because their ex- teaching that external religion is the way to worship was not of God, and it was leading people astray. That's the, the purpose of verse 13 and 14. Uh, Jesus gives two illustrations to show what he thinks of those who teach external religion only. The first illustration of the, the plant being pulled up is that they're destined for judgment. Uh, they're a plant not planted by God. What they're teaching is not from God, and they'll be pulled up by the roots. That means they're going to be rooted out and destroyed. So the false teachers are destined for judgment, but the second illustration is that they are dangerous for others. The Pharisees saw themselves as guides to the blind, but they were blind themselves, leading others to the destruction of hell with them. They were leading people astray. If you're blind, you're not going to be able to lead others. And these Pharisees, they thought they could see, but they were blind. External religion doesn't purify you at all. External religion leads you you to death and destruction instead. That's what Jesus is saying here. But in verse 15, Peter, speaking for the other disciples who are steeped in this mindset of the Pharisees, 
They need Jesus to explain this parable from verse 11. Now remember, a parable is a spiritual truth that's hidden to some and revealed to others. And Jesus is about to reveal the truth of this parable to those who are listening. But in verse 16, he first of all says, are you so dull? In other words, you should get this. This is, this is what I've been telling you. And, 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 and the biggest place in Matthew's gospel where Jesus teaches this, really, is the Sermon on the Mount. They've sat there and listened to the whole Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, you still don't get this? It's like, I, I, we, we understand this when we've explained something to someone and we think they've got it, and then later on they show that they just totally haven't got it at all, and it's frustrating. That's what is going on here. Jesus says, I've just given, I've given you the whole Sermon on the Mount, and you're not getting this. But in his grace, Jesus doesn't just leave them and say, right, forget it. He graciously explains in verses 17 to 19. He explains the parable, making it very clear what he means, that the human heart is the foundation of real impurity. In verse 17, Jesus tells us something that all of us get about the digestive system. We eat food, it goes through the body, and it comes out as waste. Basic biology, right? It doesn't defile you, really, and it doesn't really impact, well, it does impact other people, actually, but it doesn't do anything to defile you. But in linking the food going in the mouth, Jesus then goes on to say, what comes out of a person's mouth comes from the heart and these defile them. Physical food is a lot less important than the spiritual reality Jesus points out here. Our words mirror our hearts, and they show how defiled we are. And this is a really frightening thought, if you think about it, because how many times do you say something, and then you say, I didn't mean that. But you know, what Jesus is saying here is, yes, you did. You did, because it came from somewhere. It came from the heart. So if you say, I hate you, it's not necessarily saying the whole of your heart is full of hate, but the hatred's there. That's where it's come from. When we're under pressure or we're tired and we're angry, we say things that we regret, but they come from a place, our hearts, that are very dirty and very ugly at times. We may well regret saying them. We should apologize for saying them. We did mean them. And what that means is that we don't need to just start working really hard at not saying things, although we do need to work at that, of course. But it goes much deeper than that. If I'm angry with someone wrongly, if I mock them, if I laugh at them, if I'm horrible to them with what I say, the problem is way beyond the words themselves. It goes right into the heart. I need to work much harder on loving that person than I do at just not telling them I hate them. You see? But the thing is, and it gets even deeper and harder for us, Jesus is saying here, it's not just words. Look at verse 19. Jesus talks there about our thoughts and our actions too. Because out of the heart come evil thoughts, and from evil thoughts, Jesus lists most of the other second half of the Ten Commandments. He's already said, honor your father and mother, but he starts to list all the other ones as well. Our behavior, our thoughts, our words, all come 
from the state of our hearts. And in the final verse, Jesus sums up the big point. It's not unwashed hands that is the problem. It's unwashed hearts. You can be OCD with your hand washing. You can have all the rituals all lined up, but your heart will still be defiled. It's hard teaching, isn't it? Because we all know that we all say things, and we all think things, and we all do things that really reveal the hearts. And when we think about what we've said and done and thought, you come to realize that our hearts can be pretty ugly, can't they? But there's hope. Because in the Old Testament, the prophets recognized the need for a heart change. And in Ezekiel chapter 36, we read earlier, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. A wonderful truth of Matthew's gospel is that it doesn't end at chapter 15, verse 20. And that's really good because it's crushing up to that point. If we just left it there, you're defiled. That would be very sad indeed. No, Matthew's gospel ends somewhere else entirely, which we'll see. But what it shows us is that Jesus came to cleanse the heart and to give us the new one that was promised in these words. If we look at those two lessons from the passage, we see how Jesus lived them out perfectly. He always obeyed the word of his Father. His worship was always authentic. And his heart was completely pure. And it showed in the way that he spoke, the way that he thought, the way that he acted. Jesus is the sinless Son of God. And to cleanse our hearts, he died in our place as our substitute. He suffered for the sins that come from our hearts. And he could do that because his heart was clean. We can be forgiven of all our sins, and the Bible promises that we can have our hearts completely cleansed and given a new one when we become followers of Jesus and we ask him for forgiveness of our sins. But the gospel goes even further than that. The Bible promises us that if, our, if Jesus pays for our sin and forgives us of our sin, he gives us those new hearts. We get, in other words, his heart. And that works out by the Holy Spirit coming to live in us and continuing that work of cleansing. It's an ongoing work until we get to heaven. But over time, for the Christian, our behavior begins to reflect that new heart that we've been given. Our behavior, our, our words, even our thoughts, as the Spirit works in our hearts, begins to change and become more and more like Jesus' heart. And so our behavior becomes more and more like Jesus' behavior. Our words are more like Jesus' words. Our thoughts are more like Jesus' thoughts. Which is why the most lovely people that you meet who speak and act and think in such godly ways are those who have walked with Jesus for many years and are close to him. And that work is ongoing in our hearts. We're still going to have those times where 
the old nature is going to come out of us. But we need to be striving to be living for Jesus and reflecting his heart. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So let us do that by the power of the Spirit and for the glory of God. Guard our hearts and pray that God would work in us that those hearts would reflect his heart for the glory of God. Well, we're going to respond in, uh, to these words in song. Uh, first of all, uh, we're going to sing uh, Purify My Heart, asking God to do that work of refining in our lives, making us more like Jesus. And then we're going to pray in song, O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Praying that God would occupy us, that what we do reflects his heart and life. So let's stand as we respond uh, by singing together. <laughs>